0: I'm Justin Kaufman, and this is Reset. 1968 was a turbulent year in U.S. history. Martin Luther King Jr. had been assassinated. Dr. King was standing on the balcony of a second-floor hotel room
1: tonight when, according to a companion, a shot was fired from across the street.
0: So was Robert Kennedy. Not only Senator Kennedy. Oh, my God. Senator Kennedy has been shot. The country was waging an unpopular war in Vietnam. And on top of that, it was an election year. And in late August, all eyes would turn to Chicago. Chicago was hosting the '68 Democratic Convention, and so thousands of protesters from all across the country came here to protest the war. But then Mayor Richard J. Daley, he didn't exactly roll out the welcome mat. One could say what happened next was inevitable. 10,000 protesters and more than 20,000 officers and guardsmen went head to head. After four days of clashes, hundreds of protesters were arrested. Even more, including officers, were injured. All while the cameras were rolling. The whole world was watching. A year later, the whole world was watching again as anti war protesters were charged with starting the riot. And to say that trial was a political circus may be an understatement. It is a damn trial.
2: Political trial. No, we were arrested. The law doesn't recognize political
0: trials. No, no, we weren't arrested. We were chosen. The new Netflix film, The Trial of the Chicago 7, might be about the events of 1968 and the trial in 1969. But director Aaron Sorkin says it's really a story for right now. Joining me now, award-winning writer and director Aaron Sorkin. Thank you very much. You've worked on this film since 2006, uh, and that's a long time to work on any given project. What was it about this story that made you want to stick with it?
1: That evolved over the years. Back in 2006, uh, when it was Steven Spielberg who said that he wanted to make a movie about the Chicago 7, and he wanted me to write it, and I said, that sounds great. It'll be a fantastic movie. Count me in. And as soon as I walked out the door, I had to call my father and ask him who the Chicago 7 were. (laughs) Uh, I didn't have any idea what Steven was talking about. I was just saying yes to doing a movie with Steven Spielberg. Then, as I learned, uh, which included, you know, there are a dozen or so good books uh, written about it. There's the 21,000-page trial transcript. But most critically uh, was that I got to spend time with Tom Hayden, uh, who he passed away four years ago, but he was alive when I started working on this. So it went from, I got to do a movie with Spielberg to, hey, this is a really good story and it it will make a good movie. And then for all kinds of Hollywood reasons, it kept getting kicked to next year and kicked to next year and kicked to next year. And then there was a long period of time where it didn't seem like uh, it would get made at all. But then when Donald Trump started running for president and after he was elected president, when he started getting nostalgic at rallies about the good old days when they'd carry that guy out of here on a stretcher and punch him right in his face and I'd love to beat the crap out of him. Uh, Suddenly, the movie started feeling relevant. Mm -hmm. A polarized country, uh, the demonization of protest, uh, whether it was athletes kneeling during the National Anthem or the Women's March, the Black Lives Matter movement, all of that uh, was, was happening, we, start, we, we filmed, made the film uh, last winter and we felt it was plenty relevant then. We didn't need it to get more relevant, but then with the shootings of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and Ahmed Arbery, uh, with protesters in the streets of Chicago again and Seattle and Minneapolis and Kenosha and Lexington, Kentucky and Washington, D.C., with protesters again being met by police with tear gas and nightsticks it began to become chilling uh you'd watch the news at night cnn's coverage of uh, of any of the clashes between protesters and and police and, and you'd think if you just degraded the color on that a little bit, it right. would look exactly like footage from 1968.
0: And you did a great job in this film of, of showing that in, in moments where you were recreating some of the things that were happening in Grant Park. You went to the black-and-white footage and you came back to it. How important was it for you and to shoot the movie in Grant Park where, where actually the 68 riots took place?
1: Well, you just put your finger on why it was critical uh, that, that we shoot there. Uh, not just you know to get the... The reality and the uh, ambiance, uh, but uh, so that we could combine file footage, news footage, archival footage uh, with what we were shooting. Not trying to pretend that that archival footage was original footage, but using right. it to build a bridge from 1968 to uh, to today's audience. Yeah. And I have to tell you that you know in the weeks leading up to, we started in Chicago. We were there for four weeks. Um, before we moved to, we had built a courtroom in Patterson, New Jersey. Uh, We were four weeks in Chicago shooting the riot scenes and and a couple of other scenes, but I I wasn't sure what kind of reception we'd get uh, in Chicago. This was a very painful moment in the city's history, and I wasn't sure how much people would appreciate reliving it. Um, The answer is we got an incredibly warm uh, and enthusiastic reception, particularly from the off-duty Chicago police officers who were playing Chicago police officers uh, oh, is in that 1968, right? yeah. yeah, some of whom were the sons of Chicago police officers uh, in 1968, and first of all, they enjoyed the cosplay. Um, uh, <laughs> they they seemed to really enjoy pretending to beat up hippies uh, in 1968, but they also. You know, they wanted to talk. You got the sense that they wanted some kind of healing, even as Sasha and Jeremy were taunting them mercilessly uh, before every take. You know, there were scenes where there'd be a face-off between police and protesters with, like, 50 yards of no-man's land in between them. And as soon as Sasha and Jeremy could feel that a take was about to happen, you know, you can hear... ADs start to shout, you know, okay, they would start shouting at the police officers, um, really, really insulting stuff. Um, And I'd have to go up to them and say, hey, hey, guys, you you can see that that's Borat, right? Um, And I don't know if any of you watch Succession, that's Kendall Roy uh, over there. They're just psyching themselves up for the take and kind of trying to psych you up for the take. And uh, they would just kind of pound their nightstick in their palm, getting ready for to call
0: <laughs> Well, you know, Sasha Baron Cohen playing Abby Hoffman. And, and you know, Aaron, you're, you're well known as, as one of the, the, the best writers in Hollywood. And a lot of that is for your dialogue and, and, and great historic one-liners in, in movie history. To be able to be handed a gift, that is Abby Hoffman, who, who himself was a living one-liner. How, right. uh, how creating that character, creating Abby Hoffman for this film and knowing what you knew of him, how great was it to be able to write Abby Hoffman?
1: Well, it was great. First of all, you're, you're right. Abby sort of comes with his own notebook full of quotes that, that you can help yourself to. Uh, and uh, nearly every night uh, after shooting, I'd come back to the hotel. There'd be an email there from Sasha, um, who just found another great Abby Hoffman quote. And is there any way we can get this in the movie? Uh, and I would have to explain to him that this, this isn't about Abby Hoffman's greatest hits. We just have to tell the story. So what you have to do is, you know, just like I made it clear to everyone, we're not making a movie about the 60s. That, that's just too big a subject uh, to make a movie about. And the movie is supposed to be about today, not about 1968. This movie isn't about... Uh, abby hoffman he's obviously a central character uh in it but my point is you shouldn't try to get as much of abby hoffman in in there as you can uh and he said this thing and he did that thing you just you're telling the story there's an intention and an Mm -hmm. obstacle and in this story what i got i mean i mentioned that i got to spend time with hayden and what i got from hayden was that personal story between tom and abby Two guys on the same side. Yeah. They want the same thing. They clearly can't stand each other, and they each thinks the other one is doing harm to the cause. Uh, and that was a critical part of the story.
0: And and that, Uh, I mean... The answer to your
1: question is, of course, that's a delight. But that's uh, the metaphor,
0: right? I mean, that's the metaphor of the whole movie is the idea of Tom Hayden and Abby Hoffman almost being two different forces in the 60s, even today in 2020, of how the movement should be uh, represented. I mean, it plays out in that very personal relationship in the movie. That is exactly right. What's your problem with me, Hayden? I really wish people would stop asking you that question. Dave wouldn't want us to... Answer it. One time.
2: All right. My problem is it for the next 50 years, when people think of progressive politics, they're going to think of you. They're going to think of you and your idiot followers passing out daisies to soldiers and trying to levitate the Pentagon. They're not going to think of equality or justice. They're not going to think of education or poverty or progress. They're going to think of a bunch of stone-lost, disrespectful, foul-mouthed, lawless losers. And so we'll lose elections. All because of me. winning elections, that's the first thing on your wish list. Equality, justice, education, poverty and progress, they're second. If you don't win elections, it doesn't matter what's second. The
1: the Tom and Abby story is a reflection of uh, what we see really in the Democratic Party today, that the friction between the left and the further left, between people uh, who want incremental change, who want to work within the system, and people who are tired of incremental change and want revolution.
2: Yeah.
0: Aaron, before I let you go, just the, the idea of, of doing this film and, and, and being able to live this moment, and it comes out now, when you look back at it, the, the time that you spent immersed in the story of the, of the Chicago 7 and 8, including Bobby Seale, but, but also the 68 riots, what's the takeaway for you personally from spending this much time together uh, with this story?
1: I learned a couple of things. One of them is I have a great deal of respect for protesters, uh, for people who walk the walk. It's not whether you're kneeling during the national anthem or marching in the streets. It's not anti-American. It's the opposite. It's, it's patriotic. But the other thing, and someone uh, much smarter than I am uh, will have to answer this question, is did we boomerang back to 1968 or did we never move forward? And, and we just didn't know it.
0: Yeah. I don't know the
1: answer to that question. Um, uh, perhaps it's something that people will be talking about when they are done watching the movie.
0: Yeah. The film is great. The Trial of Chicago 7 on Netflix coming up on Friday, uh, out in limited uh, release now in Chicago. Aaron Sorkin, the writer and director. Aaron, thanks so much for taking the time out to talk to us. We appreciate Thank
1: you it. very, very much. I appreciate it.
0: And Well, the movie, The Trial of the Chicago 7, comes out tomorrow on Netflix. For many Chicagoans, we'll be watching not to learn about this moment in history, but to see how accurate the famed story is. The 68 riots outside the Democratic National Convention and the subsequent trial of the Chicago 8 is a story that many of our listeners lived through, whether being part of the protests in Grant Park, watching it on television, or going down to the federal court at Jackson and Dearborn to try and get a seat in the courtroom. Chicagoans know this history well. Maybe not as well as my next guest, who had a bird's eye view of the conspiracy trial in 1969, because Chicagoan Lee Weiner was one of the defendants. He's written a new book called Conspiracy to Riot, The Life and Times of One of the Chicago Seven. Lee Weiner was charged with conspiracy alongside Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubin, Bobby Seale and Tom Hayden. And he joins me now. Lee Weiner, welcome to the program.
2: Ah, thank you for having me on.
0: Of course, you were one of the defendants uh, in the trial of Chicago 7, the Chicagoan on, on trial. And Aaron Sorkin has put this film out. You had a chance to see it through Netflix. How do you think the film did? Was it accurate in p- or portraying what you saw firsthand?
2: First of all, it's a movie. Okay, so that there are some parts that are completely accurate and some parts which were part of the movie. But I'll tell you, I, I love the movie in lots of ways. I think it did the work. It both showed and told in a way that people might notice and pay attention to that resistance to injustice, even in the worst of situations, is necessarily impossible. And whether that resistance is on the streets with police or in a biased and ugly courtroom, that the way you are able to be grown up, be a patriot, is to continue to fight against injustice and try to make America better. Mm-hmm. So the
0: movie did that. It's a courtroom drama, but the flashbacks in, in um, the court went to the to what was happening in Grant Park and Lincoln Park outside the Democratic National Convention in August of 1968. You were a part of that. Oh, yeah. When we talk about that time, obviously, there's a lot of emphasis put on the relationship between the protesters and the police, uh, even to the point of, of you know, the former attorney general in the film talking about how this, this riots in 68 were caused by the Chicago police. Going back to that summer, those days, that week uh, in the park, what do you remember about it? What is it about that time that, that still stays with you this, this many years later? Huh.
2: The necessity to fight back against injustice. It's clear that it was clear very early on that the police were acting in what we believe to be the mayor's intent was to punish anyone who tried to demonstrate against a war for a better America, cultural changes, and we had to fight back. Um, there really were no choices on the street and in the parks yeah. those days.
0: What did it look like from your POV? Because when, when you're talking about, uh, what was it, so, uh, we read 23,000 officers and National Guardsmen there, so almost two officers for every one protester what was it like, from your point of view, uh, being in that position? And, and in the book, you specifically lay out all the places you were in every single night in the park and, and in that fight. What was it like, from your point of view, to see that kind of force?
2: The memories that I tend to focus on are not so much the ones of being hit or, or, or throwing things at wandering police officers or cars, in cars, but rather sitting on the steps of the Art Institute— the night of August 28th, and watching the crowds and the surge back and forth with police and and the crowds, for the only time in my life, I thought that a revolution might be possible in the United States. Hmm. Um, It was a brief moment, but one that I tend to remember every year and have a drink for who we used to be and what we used to hope for.
0: Lee Weiner is with us, one of the defendants in the uh, Chicago 7 trial. His new book is called Conspiracy to Riot, The Life and Times of One of the Chicago 7. Were you surprised to be included in the conspiracy trial? Were you surprised to be included with the uh, seven others that were uh, indicted? Oh, yeah. yeah.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, we, we all we knew one another, but before the indictments came out, there was a huge guessing game of who was going to be indicted. My name never came up. We didn't think of ourselves as... Um, representing anything, but, or representing but ourselves, but if you took a look physical, look at me physically uh, in those days, I looked like a wild maniac <laughs> student opposed to the government in the war. It, it was true that without the charges that John and Proyntz and I had, which were, mean, um, mine was great, teaching and demonstrating the use of incendiary devices to disrupt interstate traffic. I love mm, that yeah. charge. But without that, um, and John's one also had something to do with it on that incendiary devices, but other kinds of stuff that had gone boom in the night. It would all have been just free speech issues. It would have been um, nothing but people exercising their free speech rights. Right. And so that our inclusion accomplished two things: it got the indictments, and it also provided the jury a way to compromise out um, if they didn't agree and they. Stories afterwards is that they didn't all agree. Right. They squashed the conspiracy indictments, freed both John and I, and convicted our friends of uh, their
0: individual acts of speech right. in Chicago in those days. Not to mention the contempt of court, <laughs> which was a big part. No, well, yeah, well, and that's why oh, I want to ask well, Lee. Please. I mean. <laughs> To be in that situation, to be to have a front row seat, to to be a part of the antics, to be a part of of what everyone was talking about, the press conferences before and after with Abby Hoffman, the the judge who Julius Hoffman in this case, who you know was very strict and very, uh, if you will, quote unquote, law and order, and Bobby Seale, and Bobby to Seal. To I mean, all this kind of stuff. To be there, to be a part of this, was from the get go, did you did you recognize this was just going to be a political circus?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, it was a political trial, and we used the skills that they accused us of, using in 68 to create a riot, we used those same organizational skills to fight back in their courtroom. It was weird. It was threatening. It was horrible, and it was a necessary fight. Yeah. The celebrity that came out of that was three, four, five nights a week, We'd leave leave Chicago and speak. Everybody, we all were out on bail except for Bobby, um, was going to speak around the country. And from that speaking and from the very heavy media coverage of the trials, there was a good deal of celebrity bestowed, given, granted, thrown at us. And that also was uh, life-changing.
0: You mentioned Bobby, Bobby Seale, uh, you know, I, I talked to my dad who was uh, who was in the Chicago in the 60s and 68 down at Grant Park. And I mentioned to him that this film's coming out. He didn't know about it. And uh, I said I was going to be interviewing you and, and Aaron Sorkin. And he said, uh, ask him about uh, when they uh, bound and gagged Bobby Seale. And I think what that tells me is that that's what people remember from that trial. They remember uh, the judge Mm -hmm. ordering to shackle Bobby Seale to to put a gag in his mouth. You were front and center. You were right there when that was happening. Take us through that.
2: We knew in advance. I mean, we speculated. Our lawyers speculated in advance. Uh, Bobby's lawyer, uh, still out in California, uh, speculated in advance that the judge might take that action try to keep Bobby quiet in the courtroom, but still in the courtroom, and that might mean that he would be gagged. So we knew that in advance. We were asked, and we agreed politically, that not to do, try as best we could not to do anything in the courtroom to take the focus away from Bobby and his struggle for his constitutional rights in that courtroom. And that's what we tried to do. And for the most part, that's what we did. Of course, our fists clenched of us had spent years fighting against racism, fighting to make America better, so that the same political commitments that, we, that led us to the streets were the same ones that led us to try to support Bobby mm-hmm. in the way he wanted to be supported, was to just let it be between the judge and Bobby.
0: Yeah. There was a moment in the trial that that things got pretty real for you guys, not that it wasn't real already, but but the fact that the— shooting and killing of Fred Hampton happened during the trial of Chicago 7. The Chicago Black Panther had uh, shot dead in his house by Chicago police and and others. How did that affect you? Was that the moment where this was was more than just political theater, that this got real?
2: I'd argue that it was always real for us. There's no question about that. uh, Fred's murder was horrendous. And I, I had my own personal... Reaction to that, so did everybody else, every other defendant. How could we not? But Fred's murder was something we knew was the murder of strong black men and women who were openly fighting for a better world against racist oppression, that they were under threat. Was obvious to everyone. It was, not, it was not a surprise. It was real before Fred's death. It, it stayed, unfortunately, real long after Fred's death. That yeah. people relearned that lesson and mobilized as they did this last spring and, and during the summer on the streets was good to see. It. Bad that it still required, but good to see that people were able to mobilize themselves mm-hmm. in ways that in the 60s were not as sufficient, whereas the white community and the black communities were not as fully together on the streets back in those days as they were this past year.
0: That's so a good thing. Yeah. You said in the book towards the end that you, you spent your years, you know, your life fighting against uh, illegitimate power and injustice, as you've talked about in this interview. And, and as you just mentioned this summer, uh, what do we need to know about? what you went through, your fight, your experience that applies to what is happening now, beyond just, you know, the, the facts of what's happening in protests and Black Lives Matter, but, but your fight, your, light, your, your whole life of fighting for against injustice. Tell us about that experience and how it applies to what's happening now. Look,
2: politics is not just about power and money. It is a way that one can find, save, and express one's best self. It's a context in which you can declare, promote, enact out, and strengthen your most important positive personal values. I believe it then, I believe it now, that you had to join together with others to try to, to struggle against injustice. That is how one should lead one's life as best, as close as one could.
0: Lee Weiner, the book is called A Conspiracy to Riot, The Life and Times of One of the Chicago Seven. It's a great book. Lee Weiner, Chicagoan, Who Was on Trial for Conspiracy with the Seven, and Eight, if you include Bobby Seale. The book is, is a must read just for the, the stories of hanging out with John and Yoko in New York and everything after the trial. Uh, it's, it's quite a life that you've lived, Lee, and I appreciate you coming on to talk with us about your book and about that trial and this moment in Chicago history. I appreciate it.
2: Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it a lot.
0: And that's today's Reset. Join us on this podcast tomorrow for our weekly news roundup. We'll take you inside the biggest local and state stories of the week. Until then, I'm Justin Kaufman. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you right back here tomorrow.